And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the name in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation you may be able to join. In the past, we've had uh, listeners on the show to ask travel questions. And every once in a while, some of our listeners are travel experts and have appeared as well. So if that describes you, shoot me an email to Pauline, to, sorry, to Fromer Travel Show at yahoo.com. We also want to remind everybody that we're not just on radio or on podcast. You can hear this in both mediums. Uh, we also write books and we're very, very focused right now on our website, fromers.com. On that website, you'll find all kinds of really helpful articles on how to get refunds if you have to for travel, why it may be a good idea to actually buy airfare now rather than later. And if you look at what the CEOs are telling their investors, prices are about to rise sharply. Uh, as well, we have fun articles. We just did a satire piece uh, where we created fake Fromer's covers about the quarantine. Also, please follow us on social media. We are can be found on Twitter, on Pinterest, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Just look for the word Fromers. Now, as I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, things are a little different right now. You probably don't need me to tell you that. Uh, with this pandemic, not much of us are traveling. We are doing this show in advance, so I'm taping this in mid-May. So we've changed the format a little bit. Instead of having several guests per show, we are concentrating on just one guest each show. And, and what a guest, Pauline. What a <laughs> guest you've chosen for today. Yes. Well, today we have Simon Winchester. You probably know that name if you're a history buff. He wrote the fabulous book, The Professor and the Madman, about the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. He's also written books uh, like Atlantic, The Men Who United the States, Outpost Pacific. In fact, he's such a good author uh, that he's been awarded the Order of the British Empire. I think you may be the first guest, Simon, we've ever had who is an Order of the British Empire. Do I have to call you sir? No, you don't. <laughs> I, 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 everyone asks that question and I, my wife starts to call me at a breakfast from time to time. And no, you do not. You just call me Simon, please. All right. So we want to know, we're going to talk about your travels later, but how does one become worthy of getting the order of the British Empire? What does one have to do? Well, it's funny you should ask. Basically, there are three lists that are submitted to Buckingham Palace for people that are getting honors like this. One is the prime minister's office. One is the military office, soldiers that have done something that merits some distinction. And then there's the foreign office uh, list. And I was apparently on the foreign office list because I've lived 
outside England now for was about a part of 40 years, I think. And uh, I was told when the ambassador rang to say, you've been recommended for this award and will you accept it? And of course I said, yes. But I said, why? And he said, well, because it is given to people who have, quote, brought honor and glory to their country. And I tell you, I nearly burst into tears at that moment. Wow, incredible. And yet, Simon, despite the fact that you've been named an OBE, you are now an American citizen. Am I right about that? You are, and it's funny, when I had the interview in Boston just before, when they ask you 10 questions about um, you know, what is the meaning of justice and all the rest of it, you know, how many members of the Senate are there and so forth, he said, um, we notice that you... Um, have this award from the Queen, and it specifically says that no Americans must pay obeisance to any foreign prince or potentate. And I said, um, I understand that. Well, in that case, will you, would you be willing to give the award back? And I said, of course I would. I mean, the most important thing to me is to become an American citizen. Um, of course, I'd give it back. And he said, good. Well, that's the right answer. We'll never ask you to give it back, but we want to know that you'd be willing just in case. Wow. That's a tricky question. <laughs> Simon, where, where are you now residing? In a little village called Sandisfield, which is in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And it's extremely mm-hmm. quiet, remote village. And so social distancing is very easy for me. I scarcely see more than three cars on my dirt road a day. And um, if I see four, it's a traffic jam. It doesn't happen. <laughs> so, Simon, you're, we can tell from your accent and from your honors that you are British. How did you start traveling? The first time I traveled at all extensively was in 1962 when I had a, I was living in England, of course. I was a youngster then, just about to go up to university to Oxford. And I had a year off, a gap year. And I had a Canadian girlfriend in Montreal. So I needed to earn a lot of money quickly to go over and see her. And I took a job in a hospital in North London, working in the mortuary on bodies. I won't go into it in detail, but basically I got 11 pounds a week and four shillings a body bonus (laughs) and did things to them, prepared them, buried them, all the rest of it, and then earned enough money to get on a ship from Liverpool to Montreal. Saw Carol, her name was, still, I mean, we're in touch. Um, She now lives in Michigan. And, um, Then after a month, decided to go and see Canada. So I hitchhiked from Montreal to Vancouver and then turned south and crossed into the United States, which was the dream of my life because I'd always wanted to visit America and spent the next eight months hitchhiking around the country. And I sort of went just about everywhere. I did 38,000 miles. And the extraordinary thing was I entered from Canada with 200 crisp American dollar bills in my wallet. And when I left eight months later, 38,000 miles later, into from Maine into New Brunswick, I had 182 left. It only cost $18 because <laughs> Americans were so incredibly generous to me. They put me up, they bought me meals, they went out of their way. To, one of them gave me a ride in a, a plane. I was going from Tulsa to New York, I think, and instead, he took his Cadillac that he picked me up in to the local airport, put me in the plane and flew me to Teterborough. So 
I loved Americans then, and I love them now, however many years later, six you years know, later. When my father was writing Europe on $5 a day, one of the most common questions he would get was, or what common comments was, $5, I did it for two fifty. But I think, <laughs> right. you, I think you actually beat that. You, you depended on the kindness of strangers. Uh, did you ever write about this journey? Because I know at the time you took it, you weren't yet a journalist, right? You were, you I was not. Were... I was just about to go up to study geology, of all things. So I've sort of, I've mentioned it, but I've never written it in detail. And I think it's a very good idea. So people say to me, should I write a memoir? I'm now, what, 76. And I feel that if I do that's the end. There's nothing else to write. So I'm going to sort of keep notes for a memoir. And then when I'm feeling really, really doddery, I'll push it out to the publisher. <laughs> and that'll include the, um, the hitchhiking. Although you did in your book, uh, The Men Who United the States, you did cover the road system that you traveled on. You, you wrote a fa uh, because uh, let me just go back a second. Today, uh, we wrote about on Frobers.com the, the fact that the European Union has talked about how they're going to be reopening to travel. And as of middle of May, it's all going to be Europeans traveling in Europe. They're going to have something called travel bubbles, which will allow people from similarly uh, healthy places to visit other healthy places in Europe and pretty much keep us Americans out. So I, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about the United States because our listeners are probably going to be traveling here for a while. So can you give the story of how the uh, highway system was, was, was created? Yes, uh, the conventional belief is, and it's wrong, is that it's because it's named the um, Eisenhower system. It's because it was built and, and conceived, rather, in the 50s and 60s, when this, what is the greatest construction project in the history of the world, the interstate highway system, was built. But the idea actually came in 1919, and it did have something to do with Eisenhower, because after the First World War was over, the National War College sat down to say, well, what is the next threat going to be? And they came up with the idea that a rising Asiatic power, and by that they meant Japan, might very well attack the West and the United States. How quickly could we get troops from their big bases in the East and the Midwest out to the far West on the existing road system? And so they made a convoy with essentially one of every type of vehicle in the American army, assembled it, it was three miles long, and they assembled it on the south lawn of the White House and set out westward to get to ultimately San Francisco. And they went on what was called then and is called now the Lincoln Highway, US 30. And they found that west of Omaha, there was effectively no road. And there were virtually no bridges, certainly no bridges that could take tank carriers and things like that. And so they, it took 57 days at an average speed of, I think, five miles an hour to cross the country, which was oh. deemed militarily nonsensical because 57 days later, if there was an invasion, all of California, Oregon and Washington would be taken over, one right. assumes. And so that started the impetus for discussions about building a proper transcontinental road system. And the observer, 
on that expedition in 1919 was the young Captain Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he wrote a report on it, which was lodged in the Pentagon for years, or in the War Department for years, and became the basis of the system that FDR properly conceived in the late 1930s and then was executed in the 1950s and 60s. Why wasn't it done under the Works Progress Association? Very good question. I mean, so many things were done. The TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority, the big dams, the Boulder, the Hoover, and so forth. Um, Why? I think because the war interrupted. I mean, this was Mm -hmm. such an enormous scale of construction that it had to wait until after the war. But it's the kind of thing that in today's economy, we talk about massive infrastructure projects. Something on a similar scale should be done again. Uh, well, we have to take a quick break, uh, but that's a that's a provocative moment to leave it at. We will find out from Simon Winchester, who is our guest today. You may know him from The Professor and The Madman, as well as many other books. I believe he's written about 40 books. Uh, so don't turn that dial. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show, and today we are very happy to have Simon Winchester on the line with us. You may know him from his stellar bestseller, The Professor and the Madman. He's also written many travel books, including Atlantic, uh, Outpost, Pacific. Uh, Forty. It's about 40 books now, right, Simon? Yes, a wee bit. I've, I've just completed another one which I guess will be published after Christmas, which brings it up to just about that total, a little less than 40, I think. Wow, still impressive. Uh, So, Simon, you were saying that there's something that you feel should be done. For people who are on the highway system today, how can they wrap their minds around what a massive engineering project this was and and what should be done what what other great public works do you think need to be done right now well in terms of improvement of the existing road system which is a a totally remarkable system i mean i i live in this little village in sandersfield and it's 26 minutes from here up if i head northwards to the junction with i-90 which if I turn left, I can drive without a single traffic light all the way to Seattle and beyond. And that idea to me is totally romantic and hugely important. However, I think I'm a great believer in rail travel, both Mm -hmm. uh, for freight and for passengers, and good Lord, coming from Europe, um, where we have a pretty darn sophisticated and good high-speed rail system, I would so like to see that in the United States. I think short-haul flying makes no sense environmentally, and with all the complications now of travel and security and so forth, how much easier and nicer to get into a train 
a properly equipped, high-speed, reliable train in, well, the, unfortunately, the best station in New York, Penn Station, was demolished, and we have this mm-hmm. awful sort of ghastly place in its, in its stead. But to leave from Grand Central and to go to Chicago and to go on to California, to North Dakota, to Texas, wherever, in a beautiful high-speed train with a decent food and wonderful panoramic views. I mean, that to me is travel paradise. Absolutely. It so upsets me when I see a project like the San Francisco to Los Angeles high-speed train uh, program being derailed. I mean, I don't mean the pun by the legislature there. One after another, legislatures and indeed the federal government sees no benefit in rail passenger travel. I see huge benefits. And I would, there's a, used to be a train up to the Berkshires where I live. Hmm. You could go on from Grand Central to Great Barrington to Pittsfield, up into Vermont, taking skiers and all manner of people. How much better to get them off the roads? Don't put them on aeroplanes, put them on railway trains and let's revive the era of rail travel. That's what we need money for, to improve the tracks, signaling, and get decent train service in this you're country speaking, again. You're speaking to the right people, Dad. I'm you, so you, pleased. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, you've written about this extensively, right? Of course, uh, very definitely. It's wonderful to hear Simon Winchester uh, endorse our, our proposals. Yes, absolutely, because we're drowning in traffic right now. We really are, my God. We can't keep going uh, as it is. We We are speaking with Simon Winchester. You may know his name. He is a widely published author. Among his books are The Professor and the Madman, Atlantic, uh, The Men Who United the States, Order of the British Empire. He's no, he's he's received the border of the British (laughs) Empire. Sorry, I'm reading my list uh, and many others. Simon, when we did a brief pre-interview yesterday, we talked about the fact that Americans may not be able to travel overseas as easily as possible right now during these pandemic times. And we'll have to be traveling within the United States. And I asked you where you would recommend people travel. And you mentioned two places, neither of which I'd ever heard of before. One was Guthrie, Oklahoma. Why would you send people to Guthrie, Oklahoma? Guthrie was created in 1889, April the 20th, which was the day of the land rush, whereby Oklahoma became the beginning of a state. If you may remember from the stories, the Native Americans were clustered around the edges of this unassigned territory in the middle of the country, which was fertile, had ample rivers, the scenery was pleasant, but nobody lived there. And so the government decided that people should be allowed to get on their horses, to their wagons, at the border of this unassigned land, and at the stroke of midday, bugles would be blown and flags would be waved by members of the U.S. Cavalry. And all the waiting people who wanted land could race their horses or their wagons or whatever, and then plant their flags in the ground and say, this is my land. Hmm. This is where I'm going to homestead. This is where I'm going to live. And one of the places they found particularly attractive was a, there was a railway line. Yeah, Santa Fe had a line going from Chicago to Galveston, and it had a watering stop 
called Guthrie, named after a cattle dealer in Kansas. People found this station stop and said, this is where we want to live, planted their flags. The population of Guthrie at 6 o'clock that morning was zero. Hmm. The population at 6 p.m. was 15,000. Wow. By three days later, they had electricity. Eight days later, they had the telegraph. They had a paved road within a month. They had drugstores. They had a hotel. And it was the fastest growing city in America. It's full of exquisite Victorian architecture. And for a brief, I think it was about five years, it was the capital of Oklahoma. And then there was a battle royal and Oklahoma City won the title and Guthrie became a backwater. But it is a fascinating sliver of American history, architecturally sensational and totally, to my way of thinking, interesting in a place that everyone should know about. Do any of the current residents, were any of them uh, relatives of those original land prospectors? A substantial number. Ah. It's extraordinary. I mean, America being a very mobile country, a lot of people put down their flags, sold the land within 10 years, made a profit and moved somewhere else. But But a substantial number still live where their ancestors 100 years ago. Isn't that amazing? We, We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer, and on the line, our guest for this hour is Simon Winchester. He is a widely published author uh, of the bestseller, The Professor and the Madman. He has a wonderful book called Pacific, another called Atlantic, uh, one on the outposts of the British Empire called Outpost. But we've been talking to him about the the books that he's written or the the places that he's covered in the United States. And when I asked you where Americans should visit, you had mentioned Guthrie, Oklahoma, which we just mentioned, and also Hamilton, Montana. Why is Hamilton, Montana notable? Route 93, which goes from Flathead Lake in northern Idaho down all the well, I think it terminates at I-80, somewhere in the middle of Nevada, is one of the most beautiful roads, I think, in the United States. And I used to live in Hong Kong, but I had this dream when I was living there that one day I would build a log cabin somewhere in America, the country that I like so well, and be a writer there. And I flew over to Montana, which I had this idea was the kind of state that I wanted to live in, and drove up and down, not I-93, but Route 93, and found the town of Hamilton and the town of Derby, and was at the time reading Norman McLean's book, A River Runs Through It. Mm, To me, this seemed utter Rocky Mountain paradise. Everything about it was perfect, and I decided and indeed did, I bought 80 acres of land for $40,000. And Hamilton was my local town, the place that I would go and get coffee and do my dry cleaning and so forth. 
And I became sort of very fond of this town, but the fondness only lasted for a very short while because my wife back in Hong Kong said, this is nonsense. You're never going to build a log cabin there. So about two years later, I sold that land and I made a profit of $40,000 because I sold it for 80000 mm. But about five years ago, I went back and the realtor that had sold it to me took me all around and now bustling, astonishingly wealthy part of Western Montana. Route 93 is now brimming with exciting towns and fine restaurants and big houses and so forth. And she took me back to my original piece of land and said, this is what you bought for $40,000 back in whenever it was, 1990. How much do you think it went for Ooh. recently? Well, I said, I have no idea. One and a quarter million dollars. Oh. <laughs> Part of me says, why didn't I hold on to that piece of land? But nonetheless, the town of Hamilton, it combines not only the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, I mean, the air is clear, the waters are beautiful, it's old-fashioned, and yet I read in the paper only the other day that it's extraordinarily high-tech in that there's a medical research firm there huh. which is working hard on a COVID vaccine. Wow. So it's got everything. It's got the old world America that I love and the high-tech that we're all going to have to confront. So a fascinating place. Yeah, so they must have, so they've brought in, or they've brought in or they've created an entire scientific community there. What, well, they what? have, and my neighbors back in, had I stayed, Huey Lewis in the news, <laughs> Christopher Lloyd, the actor, wow. and Andy McDowell. So I would have been in great company. Needless to say, the wife who gave me the bad advice is no longer my wife. <laughs> <laughs> She's very happily married to somebody else, I might say. And what do people do there? Do they go fly fishing? Do they mountaineer? I mean, what- all of the above. And one, for instance, they some friends of mine have a hobby of, if I say hunting bear, they don't kill them. Hmm. They hunt them and they take photographs of them. So they tree to tree a bear to to chase it until it scampers up a tree and then take a beautiful photograph. It seems to me a reasonable thing to do. And I speak as someone who at the moment here in Sandersfield, Massachusetts, we have a bear that yesterday, um, I think it chased some sheep or something. It's causing tremendous mayhem in our town. So we're very anti-bear. But in the Rocky Mountains, they don't, at least in Hamilton, they don't kill the bears. They merely photograph them, which seems a very good thing to do. Yes, absolutely. No, we're speaking with Simon Winchester, who is the author of The Professor and The Madman, as well as almost 40 other books. He also has been awarded the Order of the British Empire for his literary feats. And one of those feats was a book called Outpost, in which you traced the remaining parts of the British Empire including one really tragic story uh, of an area where, well, I don't want to give it away, but it, it has a name that sounds like the name of a person. I want to say Diego Rivera, but that's not right. It's Diego Garcia, Diego and Garcia. it's part of an archipelago in the middle of the Indian Ocean um, called British Indian Ocean Territory. And it used to have, until the 1960s, a pretty vibrant population of people who um, 
essentially grew coconuts and made coir mats and um, extracted the oil from the coconuts. And uh, there was a, a big agricultural business on most of the islands. But the American government decided that it wanted to build an airfield on one of the islands, the island called Diego Garcia. And the British, who ran it as a colony, had a small airstrip, which they had bought, built during the Second World War for the Royal Air Force. And they said to the Pentagon, oh, nobody lives there, knowing full well that two or 3,000 people did live there. And you the know American what? said... I- I have to take another break, but we will end at that provocative moment and come back after the commercials to find out what happened. Be right back. We are back with the Fromer Travel Show. I did a very awkward break, uh, but we were hearing from Simon Winchester about the archipelago that includes the island Diego Garcia. And uh, to, to recap, the Pentagon wanted it. It was colonized by the British, and the British told the Pentagon wrongly that nobody lived there. Why did they do that? Why did they want to hand it over? We had no particular use for it. I think um, we were in the business of shedding ourselves of colonies right, left and center. The United Nations was sort of leaning on Britain and we got rid of places like the Gold Coast and Nigeria and Kenya, Uganda, Tanganyika. And um, when the Americans came to us and said, look, you have this place in the uh, middle of the Indian Ocean, which you barely use, we can make use of it, but we want it only if it has no people. And even though we, and I say we, the British government knew that there were, I think, two and a half thousand people living happily, contentedly there, we said... For generations. These for were generations. We, yeah. We, yes, indeed. We said to the Americans, no, there's nobody lives there. And actually, there's a memorandum which said, um, classically, sort of racial, racist view of the British government at the time, there may be a few Man Fridays living there, but that was Oof. essentially all. Anyway, we... One night, brought some ships to the islands that were inhabited, ordered all the islanders off almost at gunpoint and said, you've got to leave, loaded them on the ships, carted them off to Mauritius, which is about two and a half thousand miles to the west, dumped them unceremoniously on the dock side there and left them to fend for themselves, homeless, stateless, in a on an island where they were racially very different from the people of Mauritius. And what what year was this? This was 1966. Mm. And we received for it, not even money, we received a 14 million pound discount on the cost of missiles for a new generation of um, nuclear submarines. And many years... Tawdry sort of transaction. And many years later, you, as a travel writer, uh, visited the island, but it wasn't easy to get to. It, uh, what I loved about this book is it starts with you saying, I'm going to visit all of the outposts of the British Empire. I'm going to do it in six months. <laughs> but it, it took you years, right? It to, took to a long time. I mean, the, 
that island and Pitcairn in the Pacific, you know, the famous one of the bounty, the mutiny on the bounty, very difficult to get to, but I did get to them. But Diego Garcia, I got to by, um, with the help of an Australian round the world single-handed sailor hmm. who I met in Cochin in South India. And she agreed to take me, but I knew nothing about sailing, so she had to teach me all the rudiments. And we sailed south from Cochin, stopped at uh, Sri Lanka briefly, then went to the Maldive Islands, and then set out for British Indian Ocean Territory, eventually got there, and she taught me on the way navigation, so I can still use a sextant. That's huh. thing. And um, we arrived there, and the British, there are six British officials. There were hundreds of American soldiers and sailors and ships filled with military equipment waiting to be used in the Middle East, which is why the Americans uh. wanted this uh, place. And the British ordered us to leave. But uh, Ruth, my uh, partner, dropped an anchor and said, no, we're not leaving. We're claiming this is a port of refuge. And so we stayed there for a while. And the American Liberty boats from one of the nuclear submarines there picked us up and took us to a party and um, huh. gave us a whale of a time. So the Brits were horrid and the Americans were wonderful. <laughs> and so you got to see the interior of a submarine as well. Indeed. And uh, I would not wish to spend months underneath the water in a tin can like that. Thank you very much. So um, they were happy to see. And, and the young lady I was with was most attractive. So they were happy to have a girl on board as well. <laughs> so you also covered Northern Ireland as part of this book, and you weren't sure you were going to. What what tipped the scales on that decision? Well, Northern Ireland, I was um, I had just joined The Guardian, so um, which is the newspaper I worked for for many years. And I was covering the north of England for them. And I remember this was very early on in my career. I had just interviewed the British Prime Minister, who at the time was a man called Harold Wilson, and I was so excited. I mean, this was, you know, a young reporter gets to interview the Prime Minister. And I called into the, uh, the desk in Manchester, because the paper at the time was the Manchester Guardian, and the sort of rather world-weary editor there said, oh, he said, don't worry about the Prime Minister. Um, the man who's covering Belfast for us has fallen ill, and we'd like you to go and cover it for us. And so I flew over, never having been to Ireland before in my life. And that particular weekend, there was a lot of shooting and bombing and mm. killing. And uh, I seemed to turn in a piece which they thought was creditable. So they said, we'll stay there. And so I stayed for three years. And um, that was the beginning, really, of, of my journalistic career. So whatever happened to the fellow who fell ill, I don't know. But I bless him for having done so. Yes, we have to take another break, uh, but don't turn that dial. We'll be back. We've been speaking with Simon Winchester. You may know that name if you're a history buff. He is the author of The Professor and the Madman, Atlantic, Pacific, Outpost, and many other books. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer. On the line, we have uh, author Simon Winchester. And Simon, we've been asking all of our guests, um, 
What is it about the travel experience that you find important? Uh, should it go on after this pandemic or do we have to redo travel? And I hate to tell you, we have three minutes for this answer, but uh, what what are your thoughts on, on travel as a human experience? I'm sure many of your guests have quoted that famous remark by Blaise Pascal, who said that all of mankind's travels derive from his simple inability to remain peacefully at home in the quiet of his living room. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, he goes out in the world, he pollutes, he interferes, he creates wars and mayhem. He thought about that famous remark for about 10 years. And then he said, if man doesn't travel, if he doesn't leave the comfort of his living room, then his soul dies. It is important to leave your house, your city, your neighborhood, your country, see the rest of the world, because if you travel, you get to know the world, but most importantly, you get to know yourself. So to me, travel is absolutely essential to the to the revivification of the human spirit, and it will start again. But I think the necessities brought about by COVID that we see our own country and get to know it first before yes. we venture abroad is a good idea. No, I, I think it probably is the only idea right now. Because it may be. It may be necessity being the mother of invention. We'll discover parts of America that we find utterly transforming, transformative, and fascinating. This is a remarkable country. The world, of course, even more so. But America is huge, and there's an awful lot to see. Yes, absolutely. All right. On that note, thank you so much, Simon. And to anybody tuning in, you have been listening to the Fromer Travel Show, as I said at the top of this hour, uh, as well as this radio show, which transforms into a podcast magically. Uh, we also have guidebooks we hope you'll buy. We have a wonderful website called Fromer's Dot com, which we're proud to say has been very helpful to people in this time of no travel. Uh, we have covered extensively how to post government complaints if you're not getting your money back from a cruise line, from an airline, from a hotel, from another travel provider. We've also given information on travel you can book now and do much, much later. Uh, we also have tr information on cuisine, on culture, on history, because those are the things that make up the travel experience. And those are the things we want to have in our lives, even if we're not traveling. So please visit us at fromers.com. And our thanks once again to Simon Winchester for spending the hour with us and you too. Thank you again. And if you're traveling, a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage. voyage.